<laughs> hey, uh, if you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings 19. I want to remind you we are in a sermon series right now, uh, walking through examples in the Old Testament where people dared to draw near to God. And uh, we're going to pick back up in 1 Corinthians the first Sunday in August. But for now, we're going to kind of take a breather this summer and just walk through these different uh, moments where we learn in Scripture uh, what it means to draw near to God. While you're turning there, uh, I want to tell you we've had a pretty incredible summer, a lot to celebrate what God has been doing here at New Hope. And I didn't get a chance yet, but I want to extend my gratitude to those of you that helped with our VBS. Um, that was incredible. Hundreds of kids here every day, the amount of volunteers it took to pull that off, and then that party Friday night uh, for the community and the amount of people that showed up to just be there and, and to be in our community was just, uh, it, just for me and the role that I get to be in here, uh, it was just a real treat. And I am so grateful for that. Multiple times that night, I had people walk up to me and uh, got to meet them. And they said, hey, so like, I don't understand. All of this, and I kid you not, they said this, all of this, everything you guys did with these kids all week and this whole thing tonight, all of this is free. Like, how do you, like, wh like, where do you pay? Like, how is this all free? And it was really cool to be able to say, hey, this whole church family is all about uh, helping young people learn who Jesus is. And uh, it's because of your generosity, your continued generosity to this church that we're able to turn around and do things like that and be able to tell people, yeah, it's free because of the generosity and the giving uh, of a church that really believes in getting the message of Jesus out. And so thank you for that. In addition to that, this summer has been really cool. We've had three young people baptized into Christ. Caroline Stein, Nathan Lester, and Hayden Shepard were all baptized into Christ here in the last few weeks. And uh, just an incredible moment. Something to celebrate, uh, just to celebrate all that God has done uh, in their life. That's your cue. Celebrate all that God has done uh, in their life. And while I do genuinely want uh, to celebrate that, I also really put the pictures up here to ask you to pray ask you to pray for them. Because as we told each one of them before they made this decision to be baptized into Christ, we told them, hey, when this happens, part of this is for you to understand that you are now a target of our enemy. And if the enemy thought it was worth his effort to go after Jesus and tempt him, how do you think he approaches us when we place our lives in Jesus' hands? And so please be praying for each of these young people as they begin their journey with Jesus. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. And we'll jump in this morning. Father, we thank you for your presence in our lives. Thank you for Hayden, and I thank you for Caroline and Nathan, and the decision that they made and the rejoicing that took place in heaven, and ask that you would continue to protect them and guard them. Father, we thank you now as we get to open your word and learn from it. I pray that you would speak clearly to us what you would have us to learn, that you would be clear about what you would have us to take into our lives and apply Give us ears to hear. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember the first time that I encountered a snowstorm. Um, and so if, unlike a lot of you in this room, for me that happened as I was older. My wife's grandmother lives in a small town in Illinois uh, called Oblong. Oblong, Illinois. Anybody ever been? Yes. One. <laughs> out of the whole church. All right. <laughs> it's a very small town, and we go visit from time to time. And uh, years ago, we were visiting, and I was supposed to be back here uh, to preach the next day. And my wife had some responsibilities here at the church as well. And this was when I was a youth minister, and so I didn't preach all the time. So when I did, it was like, hey, you got to get up and make sure that you're there to preach. And so like, okay, um, 
how are we going to do this? Because we got word on the radar that there was a snowstorm coming, and so we needed to take off. And so we thought, all right, we got to get out of here a little bit early. And so we're going to go, and we're going to take uh, our youngest at the time was our daughter, Abby. She was a newborn. And so we thought, she's coming with us. But we'll leave our oldest, Caleb, with his grandma and grandpa at great-grandma's house, and when the storm's done, they'll bring him home. And all is good. And so we set out. And as we got driving, it didn't take very long. And all of a sudden, the snow starts coming. And for me, I had never experienced anything like this. As a matter of fact, it was only two years before that was the first time that I had ever even seen snow fall from the sky. See, when you grow up in Florida, you don't deal with this kind of evil. So it was <laughs> really hard. So as I was driving, the snow just starts coming. And it kind of looked like this, honestly. That's not an actual picture. I was driving, I promise, not taking pictures. But like, that's what it felt like as we were driving, and I started to get to where I couldn't see. And then I started to get nervous because I thought, I can't turn around. There was no way for us to turn around without getting stuck, and I can't pull over with a newborn in the car because if we do get stuck, so I have to keep going. And that's our only option. And I had never experienced this before, and so I started getting nervous and scared and thought, man, we just got to get through it. We got to keep going. And it just felt like everything was closing in around us. And eventually, I saw some taillights. We slowly made our way, caught up to this, what ended up being a semi-truck. I was very grateful for them. Not always grateful for them, but I was very grateful on this day. I am grateful, just not always. Uh, this day, I was very grateful for this semi-truck. And we followed that truck the whole way until we got to our exit and then slowly made our way home. What normally took about two and a half hours took us six hours that day. It was incredible. I tell you that because this is what comes to my mind as an image when I think about what it means to suffer or to walk through a season of difficulty, whether tragedy or even depression. And I'm sure you've been there. And maybe that image, and we can put it back up, that image resonates with you. Maybe that's what it's felt like for you. As you are walking through life, things seem normal, and then all of a sudden, it starts to cloud in around you, and you feel like, I'm not prepared for this. I'm not used to this. I don't really understand what's going on here. Why is it happening like this? And I don't know if, if for you what it was. It could have been the loss of a loved one. One day, they're here, and you're laughing, and you're having a good time. The rhythm of your life is good, and you would say, things are really, really good, and then all of a sudden, they're gone, and it, you weren't prepared for that, and you don't know what to do, and just feels like you're driving down this road, and you can't even see the road in front of you. How are you supposed to keep going? They were here yesterday, and now they're gone. Why is this happening? Maybe for you, it was uh, going through a really bad divorce, and you thought, it's never going to happen to us. We've got the best marriage. Everything's good. And now you find yourself walking through what you never thought you'd have to walk through, and it just feels like you can't see straight. It feels like everything is clouding around you, and you're not sure how you're going to keep going, let alone how long the road is, and you can't see the taillights yet. Maybe it was the sudden loss of a job. Everything's going well. You're providing for the family. The job is downsizing, and your position's cut, and all of a sudden, you don't know how you're going to pay the bills, and you just feel, you just feel it. Look, if you're a human being in here today, you have felt this, and if you haven't, if you've not walked through a season of suffering, can I remind you that you're one phone call away from your whole world looking different? Like that, it can change. For far too many of us, we're ill-prepared to walk through suffering, especially as even as Christians. It's hard to walk through difficulty. C.S. Lewis summarized it well. He said this. He said, we can ignore even our pleasures, but our pain insists upon being attended to. 
I mean, when things are good, sometimes you can take it for granted. You know how that feels. And, and you can just like, yeah, that's normal. That's good. But when pain enters your life, there's something about it that requires that we pay attention to it. So here's the question that we're going to look at that kind of comes from the text that is also answered in the text. The question is this. How do we draw near to God? How do I draw near to God? When I'm going through pain that makes it hard for me to even see him. Like, how am I supposed to draw near to this God who wants to draw near to me when it just feels like I can't even see what's in front of me? How am I supposed to do that? And in order to learn that, we're going to look at the life of Elijah, the prophet in the Old Testament. Before we get into chapter 19, though, we got to set the stage a little bit so you understand what Elijah's going through when we kind of figure out why he's in this slump that he finds himself in, why he's walking through this difficulty and this pain that he finds himself walking through. So before 1 Kings 19 is 1 Kings 18, and I'm going to walk you through a little bit of the history, not doing it full justice. There's a lot more there, and I encourage you to go ahead and read that passage and study it. But in 1 Kings 18, it's, it's culminating from a history in Israel. The Israelites are God's people, and throughout history, they had struggled with worshiping idols, an idol is not a word that we uh, define well in our culture. We use it for TV programs. But what an idol was is anything that you would give your heart, your allegiance, or your worship to that was not God in any fashion. And so the Israelites would go through what you might call spiritual cycles that have high points and low points when it came to that. And the low points were usually caused, caused by an exposure to what we would call paganism. Now, again, that's another word you're like, don't really. Paganism's a worldview. And let me define it for you simply where the Israelites believed there was one true God. There's one God, and we're going to worship that one God. Paganism was a worldview that taught there are multiple gods and multiple ways to worship those multiple gods. And so a pagan culture begins to influence this group of people that worship the one true God, and all of a sudden they're pulled astray, and they go on a downward slope, and they give in to this, and they begin to worship pagan gods, false gods, gods that don't really exist. Well, then God would sweep in and he would do this through a revival of sorts. And he would work through, in your Old Testament, you read about judges and you read about certain kings, priests, and prophets. And they show up on the scene and they would lead the people back to God, to worship the one true God, away from these multitude of gods and back to the one true God. And they would experience revival only then to be influenced by paganism again. And it becomes this cycle. Well, something interesting happens in the history of Israel when the king of Israel named Ahab marries this evil uh, woman named Jezebel. Don't name your kid Jezebel, okay? And I'm confident that has not happened in this room, so I'm not going to apologize. <laughs> so he marries this queen Jezebel. She, she was uh, the daughter of the king of Tyre and Sidon. And what you learn about Jezebel is that she was uh, fanatically devoted to. She worshiped with all of her heart. A false god, meaning he didn't exist, a false god named Baal. Some people pronounce it Baal. We're going to say Baal because it's easy. So the name of that false god is Baal. <laughs> and so Jezebel would worship with everything she had, the false god Baal. And so when she then comes and enters into this more political arranged marriage, bringing these two people together, and she marries King Ahab, she brings with her all of her pagan false worship of Baal. And when she brings it with her, she brings with her 450 different prophets. And these prophets come in and they set up shop. They begin to teach. And what happens that had never happened in the history of Israel is fascinating is this. For the first time, you no longer had pockets of paganism. 
and pockets of true worship of the one true God. Now you had, as Jezebel instituted, a national religion. And that had never happened in the history of Israel. So now everybody was required to worship Baal. And you think about the pressure put on all these people. So now you have this cult that comes in, and it is the only thing you're allowed to worship legally. And they set up shop. They had different temples and shrines and schools, seminaries, you might say, where you could learn and you could grow in the worship of Baal. Well, eventually it gets to the point where God's like, I've had enough. And so God brings in the prophet Elijah, and he gives him this really cool tool to get everybody's attention. It's called a drought. <laughs> and God says, in order to wake you up, I'm going to stop the rain. And he does. In fact, it's the longest and most difficult drought in the history of Israel. They had never experienced anything like it. Crops are dying. The economy tanks. Everybody's on the edge of their, everybody's at the end of their ropes. And what's going to happen? Well, then God tells Elijah, now that I've got their attention, I want you to go to King Ahab. And Elijah shows up and confronts the king. It's the prophet. And he says, Ahab, I want to challenge you to a showdown. It's pretty awesome. Like, you can't tell me the Bible's boring. Like, this is so cool. It's like the stuff that movies are made out of. I'm sorry. I get, like, kiddie, like giddy. But I love certain movies where, like, the, the, the good guy comes on the scene and he uses his intellect and his wit and power and overcome. It's so cool. So 1 Kings 18, all right? He comes to him. He says, here's the deal. We're going to have a showdown. We're going to meet on Mount Carmel. You 450 prophets of Baal, me by myself, Elijah, and I want to have a showdown. And I want to prove to everybody around who the real God is. And so they get on Mount Carmel. He says, here's how this is going to go. Each of us will take a turn. We'll build an altar. We will sacrifice a bull, put that bull on the altar as a sacrifice to the God that we're praying to. And then we're going to pray. And we're going to ask our God to answer our prayer by accepting the sacrifice and ending the drought. And whoever's God does that wins, and they get to live. And the other side, not so much. So let's figure this out. And then they have this showdown. Well, Elijah shows up, and he says, I'll be a gentleman. I'll, go, I'll let you go first. And so that's what they do. 450 prophets of Baal, they build this altar. They sacrifice this bull. They put it up on this altar. And then they start to pray, and they start to dance around. Nothing. Not a word. We'll say, they, all right, well, let's pray louder. Let's dance harder. So they pray louder and they dance harder. And they're like, let's cut ourselves. And they start cutting themselves to show how devoted they were to Baal. Nothing. And then the best part, Elijah starts to trash talk. It's like, oh, all right, well, if we're going to be quiet this long and you're dancing around and like you guys are making fools of yourself, maybe he's just not interested in hearing you. Or maybe he's in the restroom, like literally says, maybe he's preoccupied with himself. Like maybe your God just doesn't care. Like maybe that's it. Now it's Elijah's turn. So Elijah comes over and he uh, builds his altar and he sacrifices a bull all by himself. He gets it all set up. Then he digs a trench around his altar. And then in the middle of the worst drought in their history, he tells them to go get enough water to completely drench the altar and fill up the trench that he'd built around it. Think about that request. <laughs> and he drenches it. And then he steps back and he offers a prayer. And he does no dancing and he does no jumping around, no cutting, no nothing. He offers a very simple prayer. And he asks God to do what only God can do. He says, God, would you do what only you can do? The one true God. And boom, fire comes from heaven, consumes it all, dries everything up. The drought is over. The rain is coming. It's an incredible moment. 
Like you think, just think, put yourself in that moment for a minute. Like that's incredible. The mountaintop of mountaintop experiences for this guy. He just witnessed the power and the presence of God unlike anybody had ever seen in the middle of the worst drought ever. God comes and consumes this offering in front of everybody. The 450 prophets of Baal are put to death. And, and now Elijah's thinking the only thing left to do is for us to anoint a new king and get rid of Ahab and Jezebel, this evil power couple. We're going to get rid of them. We're going to have a new king. Or maybe they're going to repent and we're going to, whatever it is, I know something good is coming. And then it happens. He gets that phone call we talked about, the one that can change everything. I mean, he's on the high of highs. He's experiencing the greatest moment of his life. He's, this is it. God is real. Everyone knows God is real. We serve the one true God and God's going to do something incredible in this nation. And then he gets that phone call. Not literally, because they didn't have phones, but he definitely got the message from Jezebel. And Jezebel said, may it be done to me like it was done to those prophets if I don't have you dead by the end of the day. And all of a sudden, he finds himself on that road, and the snowstorm sets in, and he can't see in front of him. Everything was so good just yesterday. What's going on? I mean, I just saw the presence of God, the power of God. I was on the mountaintop, and now... Jezebel's coming to kill me. It's like it made no difference. It's like it didn't do anything. God, you're supposed to help me. And I don't see you doing anything about Jezebel. What is going on? And that's where we're going to pick up the story today. First Kings chapter 19. And we're going to study a little bit of Elijah's response to Ahab and Jezebel's threats. Verse 3. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. Now, again, put that in the context. You're on the mountaintop. You see what God does. And the next day, many scholars have a hard time with the timetable here. You study this passage, you learn they struggle with the idea that you could be experiencing what you experienced so much in chapter 18. And now in chapter 19, you're in such a deep valley. How is this possible in such a quick amount of time? More on that in a little bit. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. At once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head were some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then he laid down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. So Here's this moment. He goes from mountaintop experience to deep valley. And the text really tells us clearly he slips into what we would call a depression. He is struggling to see the meaning and the purpose of everything that he's already done. And you see some signs of this. He has this servant that would have been with him. He tells the servant to say he pushes back the only friend he had. Remember, he thinks he's alone. He fought 450 prophets of Baal by himself. He's feeling lonely. This only friend he's got, and he leaves that friend there, and he goes into the wilderness by himself. And then he prays this really intense prayer. Like, God, I'm ready for it all to be over. I, I've, I'm burned out. I'm exhausted. I've got nothing left to offer. Like, what, what's the point? Would you take my life? Now, most scholars agree he's not saying he wants to take his own life. He's just saying, God, would you just please take, take it? I'm done. I've got nothing left. I'm just so tired. I love this because I think it reveals for us the integrity of the Bible. And here's what I mean by that. The Bible does not shy away from showing you the weaknesses of the heroes. 
a guy who just experienced the peak of ministry success could just a little while later, 50-something days later, be in the worst valley he'd ever been in. And the Bible doesn't shy away from it. You know, there's three different times that leaders in the Bible prayed that prayer. Take my life, I'm done. Moses prays that prayer, Elijah prays that prayer, and Jonah prays that prayer. These are not lightweights. These are mature, devoted followers of the one true God. And the Bible does not shy away from showing that they are still humans. They are still people, and they still struggled. As he continues to struggle, let's pick up our story here, and we'll break it down here in just a moment. It says, there he went into a cave, verse 9, and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put, up, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after that came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And he heard a voice in a whisper, what are you doing here, Elijah? He'll go on to repeat his plea of feeling alone, feeling like he's going to be killed. And then at the end, God will begin to kind of correct his thinking. But you see, God does some interesting things in this passage. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture because it really gives an outline for what it looks like to go through suffering and maybe how to help other people along with helping yourself go through suffering. Like how do I lean in and trust God in the midst of all of this difficulty? It really does show that. Look at what God does to him. The very first thing God does is not rebuke him. The first thing he does is he sends an angel to minister to him. Remember that? Like he shows up, he, he falls asleep, he wakes up, the, minister, the angel's there to make him a meal. What, what does the angel not do? You understand when angels show up in the Bible, they're always on a mission. They don't just like hang out around creation and find cool stuff and go, God, you'll never believe this. Like, yeah, he will. He made it. So angels are always on a mission. This angel on a mission to do what? Well, he wakes him up and he says, are you kidding me? You just watched the power of God in your life and now you're running away scared? Get up, man up. You're supposed to be God's man. Get up and get over it. No, he didn't do that. He doesn't even really talk. He says, you're tired. I made you some food. Go eat. Take another nap. Essentially, he's like, rest, rest, and then go hang out in a cabin in the mountains for a little while and recuperate. And then what does he do? Well, he asks him this question. He asks it to him multiple times. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Do you understand when God asks a question in your Bible, anytime you experience this in the Bible, God is not seeking information. He doesn't need it. What God is doing when he asks questions of his people is giving them an opportunity to express themselves. So think about it. He's now giving Elijah a chance to just pour it all out. Just, what are you doing here? What's going on? And then he begins to speak to him. And when he speaks to him, it's fascinating. The mountain that Elijah's on is called Mount Horeb. You know another name for Mount Horeb in your Bible? Sinai. It's Mount Sinai. You know what happened at Mount Sinai? And the stories that Elijah would have known and been looking for God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, met with him on that mountaintop. And when God spoke on that mountaintop, there was lightning and fire and shaking. And Elijah would have known that. And so when he goes out on the edge, he would have been looking for God to speak that way. Because here's the deal. God does speak on the mountaintop. And for far too many Christians, they think that in order to hear God, you have to be suffering. And that is just not biblical. 
The Bible does not say the only way for you to be truly spiritually mature is to suffer and go through pain. That is absolutely a part of our journey, but that is not all there is. You can have good times with God. You can experience the Lord on the mountaintop, and you don't have to feel guilty for it. You don't have to feel guilty for it. You can experience his love. You can experience his grace, his power, all of it. Elijah experienced the real God on the top of that mountain, and he was also present in that whisper when he walked through that valley. Howard Hendricks famously used to say that the face of most Christians would make a good book cover for the book of Lamentations. We are not good at enjoying God. And Elijah did enjoy him there, and now he's learning to hear him in the difficulty. So God speaks to him not the way that he's... And here's the other thing. Just because God's not doing what you think he should do, the way that you think he should do it, doesn't mean he's not doing something. Doesn't mean he's not working. He is absolutely working. And then and only then does he speak up to Elijah. And what does he say? Elijah, you're not seeing it right. You're not seeing it right. There's 7,000 others who have never bowed to Baal. And you couldn't see it. But I was working the whole time. He corrects his wrong thinking. So here's what I draw from this. It's fascinating to me. The way that God handles Elijah is profound. See, when most people go through suffering and difficulty... As you walk through this, and I've seen this in ministry, many people think that it's reduced to simply the physical. So like if you're going through depression or you're going through suffering and pain, it's just physically. You need to, you need to sleep. You need to eat. You need to take medication. And that's all there is to it. If you'll just do those things, you're going to feel way better and we'll get you through it. Then there's this other group that says, no, it's all spiritual. And so when you're going through suffering or depression or you're driving down that snowy road and you can't see what's in front of you, you just got to pray more. You don't need to do anything physical. Just pray more. If you just have enough faith, God's going to do what you need him to do. And then you have that group that says, no, it's all psychological or mental. And so what you really need to do is just have someone that you can talk it out with. And so you need to go to a counselor or a therapist, just talk, and they're going to help you, and they're really the main way that you're going to get your help. What's fascinating to me is that God doesn't go any one of those avenues. He uses all three. It's a beautiful picture. Look at what he does first. First, he ministers to Elijah physically. Elijah's exhausted. He's got nothing left. And I don't know about you, but when I'm really tired, I don't say or do very much that's productive. Like, I'm not great. It's like Sunday afternoons, my family has learned, like, not the best time for dad, right? Like, that's just not the best time. It's the worst time for you guys to send me an email about what you didn't like in the sermon, okay? I'll tell you that much. Because <laughs> then it's like, what are you doing? Like, I read it, and I'm like, now I don't like you. Like, that just made everything hard. I'm kidding. It doesn't go that bad. But but it is. It's a bad time, right? Because I'm exhausted. I'm tired. Elijah was so tired. And what, is, what does God do? He says, sleep. You need to sleep. You're tired. I've met with so many people over the years. And what, that, what happened, we get to talk and I'm like, how are you resting? I'm just so busy. I can't sleep. Three, four hours a night. I'm like, oh, let's do the math. Like who you are right now is affected by, you need to rest. And for some of you, it's, you just need to go read a good book. You need to get away. You need a weekend away with your spouse. You need to catch your breath. You need to be physically rejuvenated. Sometimes that's medication. Sometimes that's physical rest. Sometimes you need to start eating better. Whatever it is, physically, you need to make sure that you're feeling good. My father-in-law, David, um, has uh, had a lot of uh, grad school experience. And one of his professors uh, famously said these words. He said, biology affects theology. Biology affects theology. God created us in a way that the biological way that we're created affects the way we're able to see and receive what he wants from us. And so what God does here with Elijah is he sits him down and says, you need to sleep before we can get to anything else. You are exhausted and burned out. You need to rest. And then we'll move on to the next steps. 
I read of a preacher this past week who said that one of his Bible college professors said to him, the most godly thing that you can do, he's talking directly to him, here's the quote, he says, the most godly thing that you can do right now is to take a nap. And in your case, that's going to do much more to help you develop the fruits of the Spirit than memorizing another verse. For some of us, we don't need another Bible study. We don't need another memorization. We need a nap. That might be your takeaway. You might go home and say, my takeaway from the sermon today is to take a nap. Wait till we're done. Wait till we're done, Ben. Let me get through the sermon. Then you can take all the nap you want, all right? So he ministers to him physically. The next way is he ministers to him psychologically. He allows Elijah to get it all out. And he doesn't correct him while he's doing it. He just allows him to spill his guts twice. He allows him just to just get it all out there which is exactly what Elijah needed to do. The Bible is full of people that vent to God. They let it all out, and God listens so well. When God asks that question, he just wants to hear his heart. And for so many of us, we have no one to talk to. We go into isolation. Look what Elijah did. He pushed the only friend he had away. You stay here. I'm going to go even further into the wilderness because I don't need, I need to. When you isolate yourself, you run the risk of not of, of holding all these feelings in, and then they're damaging to you. And so God sits him down and says, I'm not even going to interrupt. Just let it out. And his feelings aren't right. right. They're wrong. The way he feels about this situation is actually factually wrong. And God shows him that later, but he doesn't do it in the middle of it. He just lets him talk. He just lets him get it out. See, your feelings, they're not about right and wrong. You can't control what you feel in that moment. Like you're going to feel. Feelings, and I've said this to you before, are like a smoke detector. When a smoke detector goes off in your house, you don't go running up to the smoke detector and ask it what's going on. <laughs> like, you don't know what? You trace the smoke to the source of the problem. That's what your feelings do. Your feelings are going to give you an indication as to what's really going on. And Elijah felt lonely and alone and by himself. Well, what's deeper in there? What's going on? He felt like he didn't know what God was doing. And so then and only then, God ministers to him through his word, spiritually. So God ministers to him physically and psychologically. Now he's ready to hear from God. He's rested. He's healthy. He's been able to get everything out there. And now he's ready to sit down and hear what the Lord would have to say to him. And God ministers to him spiritually through his word. And it's fascinating. He corrects his thinking, but it's not until after he can say it all. You're in a good place. It's good to listen now. And God shares with him. Essentially, at that point, he sees the taillights on the snowy road. And he knows how he's going to get through this. And he goes on and has a good ministry. It's fascinating to me, the process. He ministers to him physically, psychologically, and then spiritually, and allows him to be in a good place to be able to get through the storm he found himself in. And that's all over scripture. Let me finish this way. Matthew chapters three and four uh, illustrate for us a fascinating case of a mountaintop experience in a deep valley in the life of Jesus. Matthew chapter three, Jesus is baptized. It's a beautiful scene. If you haven't read it, I encourage you. It's the end of Matthew chapter three. Jesus comes to be baptized. And when he's baptized, and there's water there, there's life there, there's just, it's just this incredible place. And he's baptized in the Jordan River. And when he comes up, the heavens open up and the very voice of God comes and, 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 and the spirit comes on him and then the voice of God says, this is my son in whom I find great pleasure. Well, you contrast that immediately. Right away, he goes to chapter, he goes to chapter four and he's led into the desert 40 days and 40 nights he fasts, and then he's tempted by the enemy. Satan shows up to tempt him. So now in chapter 3, you have water, you have life, you have people, you have the very voice of God. In chapter 4, you have the desert, no water. He's by himself, and you hear the voice of Satan. 
And Satan begins to tempt him. And most people point to the temptations. They'll say, well, the first temptation was, well, you're hungry. Turn that stone into a bread and eat. I think the first temptation came before that. Because just like you heard the voice of God saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, the very first thing Satan says to Jesus is, if you really are the son, if you really are the son, you shouldn't have to be hungry. You're the son of God. And you shouldn't have to do ministry the way you should be able to throw yourself off the temple. And if you'll bow down to me, Jesus, I'll give you all the kingdoms you can see. And my kingdom doesn't come with a cross because we both know where you're headed. How does he withstand that? He'd been prepared for that way before he got there. How do we know that? Because every time Satan tempted him, how did he respond? With the light. That road, he's hungry, he's tired. That road's closing in, but he sees that light real clear. And he knows how he's getting through that. Man shall not live on bread alone, Satan, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is so important. But you can't prepare for the valley in the valley. Nobody opens the door and sees the tornado coming and says, let's go get ready. (laughs) You're ready way before that. You prepare for the valley when you're on the mountaintop. When things are going good and the road is clear, you're prepared and you're getting ready and you know what to do. And the best way to prepare for the storms of life are to hide the word of God deep in your heart. That is what he tells us to do. His word is what's going to get us through. But here's the deal. When you are in the middle of a storm, is the Holy Spirit pulling from a dry well? Is your heart in the middle of a drought? Or have you trusted the only one who can bring the rain back? The only one who can fill that well so that when you need it most, the Holy Spirit's pulling out the word of God through the people around you and and ministering to you physically, ministering to you psychologically so that he can speak clearly to your life. Because the only way we get through that storm is to follow that light. And that's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. So much for the opportunity we've had to be together and to learn. I got to think about so many different ways I want to take your approach with Elijah and apply it to my own life and the way that I interact with other people. God, I imagine in a room like this, there's many who feel like they're already on that road and they didn't prepare well. And so they don't know how they're going to get through it. And they feel everything crushing down on top of them. They can see the road disappearing as the storm is clouding it out. And God, I just pray a blessing over them right now. I pray, Father, that they would lean into your word and begin to hide it deep in their heart so in the moments that they need it most, it would be there. They would see those taillights and be guided through that storm. Father, I ask that those of us that are not experiencing that, those that are experiencing good times and they're seeing you move actively in their life, that one, we would be grateful for that and not let it be lost on us, that we would enjoy the good times and be joyful in the good times and at the same time allowing them to be a time of preparation for when that call comes. God, I pray that we would be a people that would show the world what it looks like to suffer well, to get through these storms well, God, we love you and we thank you for leading us, for doing for us what we were powerless to do for ourselves. And we offer you this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.